You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Unfiltered with me, James O'Brien. I'm joined this week by someone who really is quite difficult to describe. Ronan Farrow is the son, of course, of Mia Farrow and Woody Allen, although I've agreed in advance not to quiz him about his estrangement from his father on the perfectly reasonable grounds, of course, that his father is now also his brother-in-law. He is the journalist responsible for breaking open the Harvey Weinstein scandal and launching off the back of that the Me Too movement. But just reading up about him over the last couple of days. He, he went to college, i.e. the equivalent of our universities, at the age of 11. Graduated at 15, but he went to university at the age of 11. His specialty by the time he was 21 was foreign policy, and he, he went to work for Richard Holbrook, Barack Obama's special envoy to Afghanistan and Pakistan. And it's that side of his expertise that explains the book he's here in Britain to promote. War on peace, the end of diplomacy and the decline of American influence. I, if I had to, and I might be a little too nervous to try this theory out on him, I, I'd say that it was, it was thuggishness that linked the two areas of work. He, he doesn't like thugs unaccountable thugs who use their power to subvert truth and possibly to to abuse people. You were born into a family with myriad siblings, many of whom had severely disadvantaged backgrounds. And there's a sense in everything you've done since that you have a, a deep desire to help. I hope that I can be a small part of the solution. And that does, I think, flow from having grown up in a family where the world's problems were very much at my doorstep because my siblings were adopted from all over the world with backgrounds of very difficult disability and abuse. I'm adopted. And when I've read you talk about your siblings, you seem to have how can I put this? You don't have a very high regard for biology. Your love for your siblings doesn't seem to be in any way informed or diminished by whether or not there's a blood link. Is that fair? I'm, I'm happy to hear that that comes through because that is absolutely my worldview. And, you know, the ethical responsibilities of family and the love that holds a family together uh, has nothing to do with biology and blood ties. When did you realize that your childhood was a little extraordinary? I mean, I think it was fairly apparent from the beginning. <laughs> but you need a point of reference, don't you? You need to be able to compare it to... Well, you know, I was growing up in a, a pre predominantly in a small town in New England where we were the only family of color. We were every minority under one roof. You know, I never saw another a black person, an Asian person, um, other than my own siblings uh, in that community. So, you know, we always looked different and people sort of were puzzled and said, oh, what, what's this about? Self-consciousness ever on your part? Did you ever sort of think, I wish we looked like all the other families? Uh, plenty of self-consciousness, but not about that. I was always very proud of the family. Yes. Yeah. Why do you think that is? I imagine my mother did a tremendous job as a very strong single working mother in always raising us from square one with a certain set of values about equality and the importance of uh, addressing problems where you see them. And there was never any kind of 
regret about the kind of family I had or um, shame or stigma. I had several cases where my black siblings in particular would get called, you know, the N-word in school by, you know, I, I think less sort of malicious people and more just kids trying on epithets for size. And right. be interesting to see how different families dealt with that in different ways. But there was actually, there was one prominent Broadway performer who I won't name to, to spare her son, who was, I think, like seven or eight when this happened, but who uh, her son had, you know, used this word um, about one of my siblings. And, you know, she came over with like pastries and you know, <laughs> tearful apologies. And obviously that kid was uh, set straight. But so I, I saw the ways in which, you know, race is such a complicated issue in America and in which I guess in the eyes of some, this kind of family I had could be a source of stigma. But I never internalized that for a, a second. I always viewed it as a really wonderful positive thing to fly a flag about. Did you ever get into fights? I wasn't really a scrapper in that way. I mean, it's funny. People see in my work that I'm quite confrontational and unafraid of a fight, but that's not really my manner interpersonally. And I actually, you know, I have to tangle in this line of work with some very aggressive people and people who use, you know, bullying as a tactic and kind of sort of intimidation and try to get you on the wrong foot and destabilize you. And, you know, I know how to deal with that, but it's definitely not my manner. And I I actually, uh, I don't enjoy that kind of sparring as some people do. I, I, I wondered. I find I, it inefficient. I find it counterproductive. Yes. I, I wondered how we were going to broach the subject of your sort of prodigal status as a child. Because, again, it's something that you're probably a little bored of talking about. But for a British audience in particular, some of the simplest statistics are staggering. And it occurs to me as you answer that question that you answered as if there was no distinction between Ronan the child and Ronan the adult. When I asked if you got into fights, I kind of had an image of a, of a kid getting into scrapes, whereas the answer you gave, and I suspect it did apply to Ronan the child as much as it applies to Ronan the adult, was very measured and almost utilitarian. You didn't get into fights because they wouldn't have achieved anything. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, I definitely, I think I probably had more temper than I have right. now as a kid. I think that is one of the things that developed in a positive direction over time. But I was never a big fighter. I would say any flare-ups of that were very occasional. You're right. It's a really interesting and insightful way of framing things to talk about how sharp a distinction any of us draws between our childhood selves and our present-day selves. I don't really draw a sharp dividing line. It, It feels to me much more like I've certainly evolved, and I'm sure I was insufferably annoying as a kid, and I hope that uh, while while I'm probably still somewhat annoying as an adult, I've sanded the edges off a little. But I, I don't reflect on that period of my life like I'm looking back on a different right. person. I, I think probably because I had fairly adult responsibilities from a fairly young age, as you alluded to. Yes, this uh, is enrolling at college before hitting yeah, puberty. recent to me. <laughs> you were 11 years old when you enrolled at, at college, right. which is, for, again, university. university at here. 11. And, 11 and, years old. Yeah, and then I got into law school, which in the States is a three-year yes. graduate degree um, at 15 or 16, but I deferred to work for a couple of years. And, you know, none of this seemed particularly extraordinary in the context of growing up with, again, a working single mom who had had to enter the workforce 
as a teenager. You know, she was on the soaps because that was the family business and she needed to support the family. So there was always this attitude of you go out and you do the hard work and, you know, a lot of people do it earlier rather than later. How did it affect you socially? You have to adopt a mature demeanor. I suspect that came very naturally to you. But you can't really make friends with 19-year-olds when you're 11, can you? Or can you? I mean, you'll have to be the judge of how socially dysfunctional I am. No, I'm not talking about now. I'm talking about about back at college, whether you were lonely or not. I, I picked small idiosyncratic schools. You know, Yale Law School is very small, a fraction of the size of each Harvard Law class. And, you know, even when I went and did a Rhodes Scholarship out here at Oxford, these were, first of all, very rarefied opportunities. And I don't take it for granted at all. Um, Extraordinary groups of people to be involved in the Rhodes or Yale Law is the same way. You know, every classmate is a uh, like paraplegic ballerina astrophysicist, and they just blow you away and it keeps you humble. But uh, because of those smaller settings, I think I was able to be in environments that were actually quite nurturing. And when there was an age gap, people were like, you know, big siblings. And were they? Yeah, people looked out for you. Do yeah, you have friends from? Do you have friends from? I Bard, do. I from... have I have close friends from the college years. And then you know, it actually the timing worked out quite nicely in that because I deferred for a couple of years and worked. When I started law school, I was sort of at exactly the age when um, I should have been an undergrad at Yale, and I was able to have both groups of friends, the kind of the somewhat older law school friends and then also the undergrad friends who were in my age group. So if I'd asked you at 11 what you wanted to be when you grew up, what would you have said? That's a really interesting question. I mean, I was passionate about science uh, as a kid, you know, I read voraciously and read a lot of Stephen Hawking and Carl Sagan and first was very much into the idea of, you know, astrophysics and the fundamental questions about the origins of the universe and and then developed, I think, a more tangible love of like turning over stones and looking at worms. And I read about Gerald Durrell and mm. the work of naturalists and loved that. And I think when I got to college, it was really just finding that it's much harder to make a significant impact in the space of naturalism these days. Not that there aren't great people working in that space, but... That's quite an interesting admission. Well, ju- just that, I, you know, I felt like if I wanted to make a real scientific stride, it's probably not going to be in... Right. It's probably not going to be in um, animal behavioral studies, I concluded. And as I'm saying it aloud, I, I'm realizing, you know, of course, that that isn't fundamentally the case. You know, no, we could have huge revelations there. But right, the life-saving work that scientists are doing are, are not necessarily as much in that space. And and so I became a biology major and was in pre-med for a while. And then, frankly, I was just so bad at organic yeah. chemistry that I abandoned ship. And like so many lawyers, I'm, I'm a lawyer created by my inadequacy as a scientist. <laughs> you must have got sick of Doogie Howser jokes when you were in pre-med. <laughs> a little uh, bit. Yeah, so we won't make any. Don't worry. Um, I just wasn't, you know, if I had been just a hair more brilliant, maybe I would have lived out the Doogie it, Howser narrative. It's interesting and, and very honest to talk about impact being a consideration at such a young age, so much so that it would steer you away from one course and perhaps towards another one. It was all not just, you know, a, uh, an ancillary consideration. It was really the, the fundamental philosophy that I was raised with. For better or worse, you know, I have to figure out my feelings about this as I eventually raise my own kids. I was not raised in a family where the number one goal was presented as happiness. You right. know? It was... Always the worldview that I, I was given that happiness is important, but much more important is making the world a better place in whatever way you can. And the kind of role models that were held up in my childhood and whose life works I read about and internalized were 
people doing kind of selfless humanitarian work and of a level that I, you know, have not lived up to and, and probably will never because I'm, <laughs> I'm not that selfless. But, uh, but those were sort of the, the ideals that I was given. Which is quite an odd backdrop for a journalist these days. Is I mean, it? Well, I, I actually, I mean, I, look, these, journalism is... These days. Maybe so. I, in my mind, you know, journalism is absolutely in, in the space of public service. It's it's the only constitutionally protected profession mm. in the United States. Yeah, the power of the free press to hold the powerful accountable is tremendous and indispensable. So I, it was always an endeavor that flowed from wanting and not always succeeding in making the world a little bit better and the conversation a little bit truer and richer. And, and you get to look understand, albeit figuratively rather yeah, than Yeah, that's right. Literally. That's, I think you're correct to draw that link. <laughs> um, so Richard Holbrook, who, who of course became your mentor and, and special envoy to Afghanistan and Pakistan, he was right when he described you as having a great sense of destiny. Well, destiny is something else, though, right? Because destiny is the conviction that you're going to be in the history books in some way, which I think that he what else had does impact about himself. Mean? What else does impact mean? Well, I think impact is often silent and low okay. profile. So you don't necessarily need to be lauded for what yeah, you're doing. Yeah, I think, I mean, look, I'm grateful anytime I am because I'm also under plenty of fire and I've, uh, you know, taken my beatings in the press. I've been, you know, mercilessly essentially hazed publicly in various uh, acts of my career. And I'm grateful for any commendations and support for the, the work I'm doing. But when I think of impact, that's not what I'm talking about. I think the... Doctors Without Borders, mm. medical professional in a refugee camp who you never hear about, but I've you know seen these kinds of people in my work and my travels. Like mm. that's someone who's saving lives, right? So yes. that's a it's it becomes actually a, a very kind of like a utilitarian, um, almost a numbers game of like how many people are you helping and how much. Yes. And I'm not really in that space where it's about how many people can I tangibly actually save. But I, I do hope that. The journalism I do uh, lends some strength to people and elevates some voices that need elevating. So when did that light come on? When did the journalistic ambition first manifest well, itself? I, you know, I grew up around stories yes. and loving classic cinema. My grandmother was Maureen O'Sullivan, um, Jane in the Tarzan movies, one of the first American Irish movie stars. Also a fierce intellect. Yeah, yeah. Which people possibly didn't realize at the time. <laughs> she she was brilliant and a great raconteuse. You know, she yes. she knew her way around a, a damn good story. And she actually was um, briefly what was called at the time a Today Girl, a female anchor on the Today Show. I and mean, obviously I was I then on that, that set you yes, know, decades later anchoring. And she is a minor footnote in journalistic history because her, I think, quite prompt dismissal from that job paved the way for Barbara Walters to take that job. And as I recall, the fundamental problem with my grandmother as a news anchor was that she was such a good storyteller about herself <laughs> and not at all interested in reading up on the news. Um, and, and that uh, she was immensely charming and funny. Uh, and that doesn't surprise me to hear that that was the demise of her TV anchoring career. But that was that was your lodestar, was it? Knowing that your grandmother had done it, and well, then this no, no, culture no, 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 not not at all. It, it, no. it was. I just give that as an example of you know I grew up watching um, you know 
her, but also films in general from yes. the 30s and 40s and the works of great directors. You know, I grew up on um, Ingmar Bergman and Bunuel movies and um, Kurosawa movies and Hitchcock and would read scripts, you know, growing up. I always, cool. in recent years, have always just delighted in like devouring whatever the scripts on the blacklist are and you know very often what's the blacklist uh, so the, the blacklist is a an organization in hollywood that they pick the the best unproduced scripts every okay. year so that's sorry that's an inside baseball hollywood <laughs> thing but it's, it's like it's a huge know. commendation if you're writing a script on spec and it gets it's it's a blacklist okay. script yes um you know i also grew up loving fiction you know as a reader and one of my goals with War on Peace was to make sure it read like a novel, that mm. it was vital and character-driven um, and had a lot of density of observational detail that but gives you a skipped, sense of time and place. you skipped the bit in between the fiction and the, and the reportage. <laughs> well, so the bit I think where your because, love of stories right. made you want to be someone who told stories that are true. Well, I think, therefore, when I was in situations like in refugee camps in Darfur and talking to women who were survivors of rape Did you usually be with your mum when you do this? Or, or did you do it on it your own steam as well? It, yeah, okay. it, you know, I got to see her advocacy early on, and yes. then I also ended up, uh, partly because of that, yes. you know, having opportunities to do my own advocacy and was immensely grateful for and informed by that. And when listening to those stories, especially the ones from survivors of sexual violence in those war zones, it became very apparent that there wasn't enough reporting going on. And indeed, in some of these places that the press couldn't get in in sufficient numbers. I mean, they were obviously fantastic beat reporters in, in all of these places. But there were some occasions where I was seeing things that not enough reporters could see. And so I think it, it was immediately apparent to me that telling stories about that was a, a powerful way to maybe instigate change for the better, or at least more understanding. And I began submitting op-eds to the big American newspapers and started getting stuff printed. While working in foreign policy as well as visiting refugee? Because you, yes, you came I, under Richard Holbrook's wing at about the age of 21, which in normal years is about 40. But in <laughs> Ronan Farrow years, is 21. Yeah, so by that time, I had already been to law school. I had already written extensively for some years. And these were just rinky-dink, you know, small-time op-eds. But I did develop relationships with those op-ed With the foreign policy specialists. Yeah, foreign policy and human rights. Yes. And heavily reported, you know, a lot of them with a lot of detail from on the ground in these places I was. And I did develop ongoing relationships with publications where there would be stretches of several months where I'd be doing a column a month for the mm. Wall Street Journal. I did some stuff for the Washington Post, the LA Times. And it's funny because thinking back on that, the landscape has changed even since then, media-wise. Those op-ed pages don't command the sort of exclusive force of influence that they did even 10 years ago. Mm. Um, there's now so many more platforms online for people to write in. But at the time, it was I was very grateful that I didn't have connections to any of those newspapers. And truly, I think op-eds were, and to an extent still are, uh, a rare kind of meritocratic way in, in that like, you stand and fall by what you've written. You're looking at their inbox full of pitches every sure. day, and they'll run uh, an op-ed from a no-name college student with a with a vivid and important experience. They'll run an op-ed from a wonky policy expert. They'll run an op-ed for a celebrity or not. Mm. So it was an interesting kind of level playing field where, you know, it was may the best man win, and I... Uh, you I was writing. Okay. Well, yeah, I was. I was writing about stuff that I thought was important, and I was grateful to run into editors who then said, "Okay, we'll run this." Did you get scared pitching? Did you fear rejection? Because you haven't had much in your life. Oh, that's absolutely not true. I think I've failed as publicly and um, spectacularly as uh, you know people can, and 
of course, everyone fears rejection. Um, I, I fear rejection terribly, but you can't let that stop you. You have to keep hammering away at things that matter. You're referring to a TV show being axed, honestly? Uh, uh, or? Yeah, I mean, there are, look, there's also all the all the jobs, of course, that I haven't gotten um, and that I've fought for um, and like all the near misses. What, what kind of things have you Well, you'll, you'll, ha- you'll have to wait for the memoir for exactly. that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I've been, I've been rejected all the time and criticized very, very harshly. And I, I don't think, mercifully, I guess, those parts of one's biography don't stick as much as you think I or fear that they maybe. will at the time. Yes. Especially as we've got the Atlantic between us, so we've really right. So in England, they just you get the successes. Thank God, I love this filtered version of me. But yeah, no, I've had my share of being savaged publicly as well, and and I think it's, you know, it's one reason why people have grudgingly focused on the work and I think acknowledged the importance of these women's stories without me creating any noise because I I think in the American media they they know that I've been sort of put through my paces and sufficiently beaten up that they can lay off a little bit not Uh, that I don't get plenty of attacks still but how thick is your skin honestly um that's a great question that I'm probably not equipped with sufficient perspective to answer honestly I would hope that I can tolerate a lot now, having been through a lot of withering public criticism and mocking. I I guess it's not so much about having a thick skin in the sense that you don't care or are unaffected by it, which, you know, I'm too insecure to ever probably get to that point. But you have to have a thick skin in the sense that you can feel the hurt of, of that kind of public criticism and still carry on with your work. And the benefit of doing work that is not really about you and matters for the sake of other people who are doing a tough thing is you don't have that much time or space to keep thinking about yourself. No. You don't give yourself much time and space to think about yourself. No, you can't. I mean, look, maybe... Well, you say you can't. You can. You choose not to. Yeah. No, I suppose I do choose not to. And maybe, look, it would take a better shrink than I am to... uh, to you know, fully psychologize like is is my you know breakneck uh, schedule of you know trying to turn these stories around and writing these books. You, you you were on the phone when you came here. You've got something bubbling away. Clearly, there's myriad unfinished projects I've I've picked up from other interviews that you've yes. done. You, you routinely put in eighteen, nineteen hour days. You missed yes. one of your sister's weddings during during the Weinstein. Did she forgive you for she that? She was just texting me and she's lovely and okay. I am so grateful that she <laughs> seems to have forgiven me for that. I'll keep making that up to her over the years. Yeah, I mean look, as I said, it would take some outside perspective to judge whether some of that is deliberately trying to eliminate the space to contemplate those issues of self-consciousness too deeply. But in general, I try to be self-reflective about my own flaws and foibles and to address them without allowing myself to get mired in the the terrible echo chamber of public criticism and particularly social media era yes. public criticism. Yes, it is a, it's a very different age. I had I wrote a cover story for an American magazine called W Magazine about Miley Cyrus a few years ago, mm. who I thought was a fascinating character. This was sort of at the peak of her breakout moment. She and was kind of a canary down the coal mine for the zeitgeist, wasn't yeah, she? Yeah, a little bit. And was always sort of a, an interesting and dynamic artist, more so than the platforms she had yes. early on allowed. And a very forthright uh, motor mouth of a character. You know, we spent hours and hours together and she was high as a kite and, you know, let loose and said a lot of colorful things. But 
she probably more than most of us had to grapple with this incredible public pressure and, you know, the combination of adulation and ridicule and felt, I think, at that time very embattled. You know, it was right when she was getting all this criticism about this MTV award ceremony where she had been particularly salacious and people were shocked and clutching their pearls. And, <laughs> and you know, she described withdrawing to her walled mansion in the Hollywood Hills and saying, like, people ask me on dates and they want to go out and go to the movies with me. And, you know, why would I ever want to go out? Like, I have a chef here. I have a TV here. Like, I don't want to leave. You know, there's paparazzi everywhere. I get chased by them. And um, it was her against the world to an extent. But one of the insights that I gained from that, because it was sort of a heightened version of what I dealt with, is we both yes. talked about the distorting and traumatic influence of reading about yourself yes. online. And the fact that everyone who, I guess, would have been relegated to, you know, ranting drunkenly at a bar now has a Twitter account means every time you turn that thing on, there's the full range of like, I love you, I want to marry you. And also, which is, of course, unearned and dangerous to internalize, and that creates monsters. And and equally, um, I hate you, you know, get cancer and die, die in a fire. Um, and then the more serious death threats, they're sure. like, oh, actually, this is a little scary. I have to find this one in. And if you expose yourself to that in full force all day, every day, I think it really does kind of destroy your psyche. And there's no room for anything but mm. thinking about yourself mm. and your reputation and all these things that ultimately are noise that I think can impede your ability to do work that matters. And it's so funny to be quoting Miley Cyrus, like, you know, a, a source of sage wisdom. But even, you know, as, not necessarily. at that young age, you know, she did say, like, I have enforced a ban on looking at Twitter or Googling for myself. I have turned off the Google alerts. Yes. I, I have strenuously for avoided health. for her mental health. And clearly that was necessary for her to do her art in a way that was clear minded. When did you last do nothing for several hours consecutively? <laughs> And and look, I, I am uh, fearful of the answer because obviously it's necessary for all of our mental health to do nothing for a few hours now and then. Um, I did get a good night's sleep on the sleeping red eye over. I took a sleeping pill. Sleeping and I, doesn't I count. I slept through a whole flight and I was really proud. But, <laughs> then, it, but then they did have cameras at Heathrow for my first TV performance right after. Um, I didn't mean sleeping. You know I didn't mean sleeping. <laughs> uh, just sitting and contemplating and doing nothing. Uh, I mean, I had a lovely dinner with a source a couple of nights ago. Doesn't no, it doesn't count. count. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's the answer is it's been a while. Okay, yeah. and that may be why the work has ended up being so important. I mean, it, look, so I'm, I'm acutely aware of the compromises and the ways in which it's dangerous to not have space for a, a well-rounded existence. And I, I do try to counterbalance the work when I can, but this is a particularly You're on a roll. densely populated window. I, I had a, an experience recently that really hit me hard where I learned that a, a friend from law school had, had died tragically of ovarian cancer. Mm. And I hadn't even known that she had been fighting this. It came on quite suddenly. And, you know, she was in a fairly large category for me of, you know, friends that I cared about very much, but I hadn't been good at keeping up with. And um, she was a remarkable and generous person who was had given up a, a profitable legal career to do, you know, good works at a, a legal clinic. And, um, you know, I was hit hard by both the loss, but also the the realization that 
thank God she died surrounded by family and friends and does throw into relief these decisions we make early on and Mm -hmm. how they echo in all of our years. And I certainly know plenty of people who have been absent parents and bad friends and lay down to die at the end of it, I think, quite lonely and bereft of something really important. So it's a balancing act. And I I am very fortunate to have wonderfully accommodating friends and family around me that I talk to constantly and I I don't feel alone in it. But uh, yeah, it's it's a busy time. It is a very busy time. Let's begin then with the um, pitch meeting at NBC where you proposed a multi-part series looking at the sinister underbelly of, of Hollywood. That got greenlit, and I, I worked for several months. And I should I should warn you, I'm only going to give you the broad strokes on this because there's more to come on that story down the line. And I, I still think we're in a window where it's important to focus on the underlying allegations, which clearly, with these latest reports, mm. um, including ones I've been involved in, are still coming to the yes. fore. But yes, you know, the, the behind-the-scenes progression was that I had um, retained a green light on this series, and a lot of the edges got sanded off, and some of the tougher stories that were supposed to be in there about rape, pedophilia, race in Hollywood got killed, but there was still a green light on a story on harassment and okay. casting couch culture. And it was in the course of reporting that story that I began to get leads about the Weinstein allegations and interview people on the record, and then very rapidly obtained this mythical NYPD sting tape, which included a pretty direct confession from him that he had assaulted someone. That's, and, um, and was the, explosive. And Amber Gutierrez, the, the Italian one. Exactly right. That's right. Uh, so there was a lot of evidence and a lot of testimonials. And eventually all of the sources from within the Weinstein Company and Miramax who were quoted in the New Yorker story that ultimately ran, um, you know, many of them went on camera and it began to coalesce quite fast. And it went into the New Yorker because NBC didn't give you that's right. Full broadcast. And this is where you're going to confine yourself to broad brushstrokes because Indeed. that's absolutely fine. It's your scoop. Thank you. Do you think you would have got these people to talk to you in quite the way they did had you not yourself been a form of Hollywood royalty? You'd have to ask them that. Well, you know, I, I, I will I if see. I get the chance, but I'm just asking what you think. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. You know, I know... It's, it's an astonishing level of access and it, it is... I well, mean, I, I think that... You know, look, when you're recounting the most difficult experience of a lifetime and it's so re-traumatizing to talk about it, I I don't think there's a lot of confidence gained by knowing that, you know, someone has family members in the industry. I think that's, you know, neither a a cost nor a benefit. No. I, I do think that the fact that I had been an outspoken reporter on sexual assault issues and had come forward and supported my sister in her allegations against Woody Allen after a very careful review of those facts, uh, you know, people understood that I was someone who would put my money where my mouth was, if you will, and would have some degree of sensitivity about just how hard this was for them. And yet you're adamant that you're not an activist, you're a reporter. I completely understand that distinction, but I'm not sure it's quite as clear as as you sometimes suggested. Yes, you, I, I you don't care. Claim, I mean, you, you, anyone would care. Yeah, but you, I, I don't claim that it's it's a completely bright line between those two roles. I do think that there's an important distinction there. Yes. Uh, my objective in telling a story, you know, like the Eric Schneiderman story this week, mm. or even like War on Peace, mm. which is quite a bit more polemical, is not necessarily to affect policy change in a direct, immediate sense. It's to expose hard truths that hopefully can catalyze that conversation so others can affect policy change. And I do think that that's 
a meaningful distinction. I don't yes, go into yes, an investigation like this with a plotted out outcome or a specific hope necessarily. And to give you an example, if these allegations against Eric Schneiderman had not checked out mm. to the extraordinary extent that they did, you never would have been reading about it today. Yes. This, and for, I, for people who don't know, this is the... Yeah, the New York Attorney General. New York Attorney General who's had, had been a prominent advocate of the Me Too That's movement, right. as it were, and has now stepped down. And after my colleague four, Jane Mayer at The New Yorker and I um, wrote this story about these horrific allegations of domestic violence and, and abuse against him. And in each of these cases, I, I would only be too happy to have the facts tell me that there's a different side of the story uh, or people have got it wrong. Yes. I'm guided by the facts and I interrogate the facts skeptically. Always skeptically. Always, always. You and so you don't, because we had an interesting, and I, we're only halfway through the interview and I promise you that we'll, we'll, we'll devote more proper amounts of time to the new work because I'm conscious that that's why you're in Britain and it couldn't really be more timely with the Iran, yeah, yeah. The Iran announcement today. But I, I just want to ask you a couple more questions about about this. Well, partly, actually, if we're honest, because the, the profile that this book will enjoy is going to be built partly upon the success of your other journalism, sure. albeit in a completely different field. The former Mossad agents that Weinstein would routinely employ mm-hmm. to, to quell some of these stories to keep them. You, you, you were moving into really scary territory when you were doing this investigation. Yes. I mean, one of the things that I am very proud that we exposed in that series of New Yorker stories about Harvey Weinstein was that he, through his very powerful, prominent, you know, Democratic attorney, uh, David Boyes, mm. hired muscle, essentially, these combat-ready um, former Israeli intelligence agents who assumed false identities and built front companies and went after women with allegations and reporters. When did you first begin to grasp the, the sheer scale of it, rather than it just being, I don't know quite what the adjective would be, but but I suppose expectable maybe, scandal, as opposed to being utterly almost... Bonkers? Yeah, bonkers. That's that's exactly the word. I think the formal term may be bonkers. (laughs) I mean, it it really did feel at times like living in a movie, and maybe that's a reflection of, you know, that scenario being created by producer who thought on some level he was living in a movie. I mean, it's an extraordinary step to take to hire these kinds of characters to do this kind of intrusive human intelligence work. Roman, almost in its scope, and they're kind of you yeah. know, in terms of the debauchery coupled with or the Greek. institution. Yeah, or, <laughs> Take your pick. Exactly that. Exactly that. And when did you know that you'd got over the the hump, as it were? When did you know that you'd got the story and you would be able to go to presses with it? I knew that I had the story very early last year. You know, by yeah. the time the moment I heard that recording, the moment yes. I had uh, you know a sufficient number of conversations with women with allegations that were too uncannily similar and were produced independently. And I think it was apparent to every journalist who looked at it, even in those early months, that this was a massive story backed by really explosive evidence. And I sense that, that in your mind, we possibly haven't even seen the half of it yet. I think that's right. I think that the behind-the-scenes story of why it didn't run then um, is very much tied into the systems that you're asking about yes. and the campaigns of intimidation and, uh, you know, these individuals digging up blackmail material and all of these colorful and elaborate lengths that not just Harvey Weinstein but powerful people in general can go to to warp and distort systems of justice and orderly process. Mm-hmm. What are your feelings towards Weinstein personally now? Because your social circles must have crossed the case. Yeah, and only in a really positive way. I'd had 
cocktail party level yes, interactions same. with him and felt totally neutral on him or sort of had the relatively fond perception that people did that he was this colorful, maybe ill-tempered, but you know, yes. creatively genius. Which is a, uh, why character. these yeah. people get forgiven, isn't it? Because of the content, the, the, the perception sure, of genius. Sure. And, and I'd point out that the presence of these systems commanded by powerful people to suppress and intimidate more vulnerable people is a theme that runs through all of this reporting. Yes. It, through the Weinstein story and the Eric Schneiderman story where yes. women are accusing him of using the power of his office to intimidate them and through the story I just broke about those same black cube agents, these undercover operatives, yes. in some cases using the very same front companies that they came after me using, going after proponents of the Iran deal. Yes. And in the testimonials of whistleblowers in War on Peace, these are all stories about... Um, sometimes overlapping forms of the abuse of power. Yes. There's no morality, is there? That that perhaps is the myth of ordinary people, that they presume that there's a moral compass in place even in the highest corridors of power. But in fact, we seem to be living in an era, and that's why the reference to Rome and ancient Greece maybe was pertinent. (laughs) We seem to be living in an era where the more power you have, the more excused you are from conventional morality. I get asked a lot, uh, you know, what surprises me most... In in different contexts. What surprised me most about this story, about that story? And I think that sometimes it's not a a fully thought out question. It's very open ended. Yes. But in fact, I would say one of the consistent surprises is exactly what you alluded to. The sheer lack of a moral core and backbone Mm. guiding people in corridors of power, as you say. You uh, said earlier that sort of ethical journalism is not as present as we'd like. You made some allusion to, you know, not everyone has that attitude yes. about journalism as an act of public service with tied to profoundly important moral mandates. Yes, exactly. And that really was a, a shock to the system yeah. to run headlong into the realization that people I thought were in a shared endeavor of journalism as a tool to expose the truth and injustice, wherever it may lay, at all costs, Mm. were in fact uh, operating on a totally different set of understandings and motivations. Yes. And that's why, actually, this book does fit with your previous assignment, because it does speak to that similar... Because I I thought when I read the pricey of this, I thought, that's that's a bit odd, because Donald Trump's only been president for six months or a year. But of course, you're, you're describing a malaise that goes back couple of decades? Yes, both parties. And very often, an ugly trend in the name of political expedience, denigrating brave men and women who serve the United States uh, as diplomats. Yeah, so what what this is, and and correct me if my summary is too amateurish, but you're effectively, if you see, I guess, a Pompeo or, or a Rex Tillerson, they are, they're kind of like hoodlums. It's an aggression. And, uh, a reverence, if you like, for for unchecked power hmm. that has replaced diplomacy, which you describe as softer power, but but incremental change, slowly yes. seeking to influence by steering rather than ordering, by a sort of a, gen- a gentle hand on the tiller rather than hijacking the whole boat. And I I hadn't realised, and I still don't. I haven't finished the book yet, but I I hadn't realised how profound this culture change has been. 
Before we talk about that further, when was this book conceived in the context of doing the Weinstein stuff? So I had started looking at the militarization of foreign policy very early on. It was the subject of my dissertation research at Oxford, which goes on to this day. <laughs> Diplomatically put. <laughs> yes. I have not, I have not uh, as is sometimes erroneously reported, uh, dropped out of that program. That, no, that the PhDs can be a very long and... Um, very long process writing a PhD. Road. Give me five minutes, guys. Yeah, absolutely. Come on. Um, absolutely. Uh, yeah, people, so you sort of say, up people big... say finger-waggingly, you know, you dropped out of Oxford, but I, I, but I didn't. They're, uh, they're I looking, didn't for, a, they're looking for, a, for a stumble <laughs> on the CV, I think. That's probably what it is. But, but, but it became apparent to me in a lot of the places that I had traveled and was working, and even more so... Uh, once I was in Afghanistan and Pakistan with the State Department. Yes, this is when you were working for Holbrook. When I was working for Holbrook, mm. that there was this shrinking space for negotiators and peacemakers and people with a broader historical perspective that could, as you say, be a steady hand on the tiller and an important countervailing perspective in the room when we make our decisions about whether to barrel headlong into conflict. Yes. And there's fundamental attitudinal differences between the military and the intelligence community and the diplomacy side of the equation. And those incentive differences are totally fine. The military is hardwired to focus on tactical success within the immediate theater of war. Measurable. Measurable success in the short term. Yes. So you end up with examples like the ones I describe in War on Peace where, you know, we – drop guns into Afghanistan right after 9-11 and you know, mm-hmm. give them to whatever warlord can mm-hmm. help route the Taliban. But just as much as that is a useful skill set and perspective to have, there also needs to be this counterbalance of voices that say, hey, wait a minute, here's the opportunity for a negotiated settlement with these guys that can spare servicemen and women from being in the fray of a fight. Here's how this decision to arm someone might echo over the long term. And very often when you don't have that perspective in the room, what I document here is that it ends up coming back to bite you. You end up being unstrategic. What was the heyday then of having that perspective in the room? Because my knowledge in this field is dwarfed by yours, but I would have thought of Kissinger of being an example of the problem you describe rather than of being a kind of representative of the good old days. Well, I'm careful when talking about Kissinger, who is, as you know, you know, every former Secretary of State went on the record for this book and Kissinger is in these pages saying some pretty interesting things. I'm careful when rendering him, as with all of these giant figures that run through these pages, to give a a nuanced sense of the pros and the cons. You know, I I describe the fact that he is very likely a war criminal and certainly in the eyes of many that that's the case. But also, you know, he's certainly a voice of some insight and historical perspective. And He made an interesting point about the way in which this trend of the evisceration of diplomacy actually is rooted in something much bigger, a cultural shift towards the ahistorical, in his view. He talked about Richard Holbrooke's conflict with the Obama administration, where Holbrooke was trying desperately to raise the lessons of Vietnam and to caution against unbridled military escalation, absent the, the voices of diplomats. And he wasn't heard. And Kissinger, reflecting on this, of course, he knew Richard Holbrook well, said, you know, in, in his kind of Bavarian rasp, you know, it is, <laughs> it is one of the great American myths that you can always try something new. <laughs> yeah. wow. And I thought yeah. that was a tremendous moment of insight yeah. um, that we have 
with each new administration, very often uh, people coming in fixated on innovation. And I think part and parcel with the dismissal of expertise that we're seeing under the Trump administration and during its burning down of the State Department is also this broader dismissal of history and context. So in that reading, Trump's election becomes less shocking, does it or not? Maybe, right. You know, we we as an electorate um, decided that we'd had enough of the establishment voices and the experts and we're just desperate for change. But I think that a lot of the characters profiled in War on Peace also give us a different lesson, which is that you don't have to sacrifice one for the other. Someone like Richard Holbrook was a great example of expertise, but also an outside the box maverick who yes. wasn't afraid to reform and burn down old structures and traditions. That, well, he would subscribe to the notion that you don't have to be one or the other. You would clearly subscribe to the notion yeah, that I you think don't that's have to right. be one or the other. But, but society on both sides of the Atlantic seems to be lurching towards the binary. Donald Trump would be the patron saint almost of a binary <laughs> worldview. You're either 100% this or 0%. And obviously you're seeing that exact set of frustrations lead to parallel political changes here in, in the UK. Yes, and and the kind of denigration of expertise. Well, is I actually, you know, this is not a comparative study. Of course. Um, I think it's acutely relevant to uh, British readers in that the United States posture in these ways I'm describing so affects all of the places where the UK is engaged. But I honestly don't know the answer to this. Uh, is this playing out to any extent in the Foreign Service here? Uh, is the, In the Foreign Office? The, the, well, it's hard to say with Boris Johnson as Foreign Secretary because mm. you, you hope that he represents very little of what is going on in the department mm-hmm. when he's not on television, mm-hmm. kind of appearing on Fox and Friends, <laughs> trying to trying to grab Donald Trump's attention. We've also got the, the kind of post-Brexit problem with things like foreign aid, which, as, as you will know, is more often than not, and especially as your mum will know, is more often than not the way of getting into difficult areas. And yes. we now have this nativist howl that countries still embarked upon. So they think it's wrong to do anything to help other countries. Um, it's remarkable in the States anyway. It's, you know, it's 1% of the budget. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a rounding error. I think and it's 0.7 here. It's, but it's so controversial. astonishingly important in terms of exerting influence and gaining access, as you say. Um, well, I, to answer your question, I, I think that the it's just hard to know who the grown-ups are in British yeah. politics at the moment. But I think if there are any grown-ups left, they're still aware mm-hmm. of the importance of diplomacy. Mm-hmm. Where would you see the pendulum began to swing back? So I, I still, that's why I raised Kissinger. When would you have considered to be the, the heyday well, of diplomatic power? there's an interesting power? parallel. You know, I, I'm also careful not to describe this as a linear trend. You right. know, our American support for diplomacy has had ups and downs. There are moments like a sequester several years ago where everyone's budget was hit, including the Pentagon. Mm. But there's instructive parallels to be drawn. Uh, if you look at, for instance, the coverage of the State Department during World War II, right. where, and and in the years immediately preceding that, that there were articles that read very much like the coverage of Rex Tillerson in the past year, where people were decrying a State Department that was ill-suited to meet the challenges of the day and was mm. outdated and slow-moving. And it's interesting to look at what we did in response to that, which was we actually really beefed up the State Department and put more resources in and restructured it and built all sorts of new offices that were meant to you know, meet these changing facets of the international landscape. And it worked, you know, the, yes. there was this incredibly fruitful 
era of diplomatic accomplishment after that, where the so-called wise men, these sort of prominent diplomats of the time, you know, were instrumental to creating NATO and the World Bank and the UN and really securing a lot of the structures we still rely on. And I think there's a similar inflection point now where reform is needed, but we are not reforming. We are throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Burning it down. Yeah, we're burning it down. fixing it. I mean, it's uniquely depressing, obviously, but we're living in an era of uniquely depressing events. When you arrived in Britain to tour the book, to promote the book, if you'd been charged with imagining a news event that that could be more suited (laughs) to your purposes, Donald Trump violating the Iranian nuclear deal would presumably have been a fairly good contender. I'm I'm sad to say that the news cycle has been overly kind to the timeliness of war on peace uh, between the the back-to-back revelations that, you know, there was undercover work being done by Black Cube to uh, dismantle and smear uh, the uh, Iran deal and the people behind it. Again, for people Uh, who don't know, this actually involved the wife of a, of a major advisor yeah, to, they to were, Obama who's, who's these, got the joint while Israeli talk. private spies were, you know, using false identities and front companies to reach out to the wives of prominent architects and proponents of the Iran deal and, you know, calling every possible reporter they'd ever talked to and trying to ferret out anything that could be weaponized against them. Well, in, in one case, pretending that they wanted to get involved in fundraising at, at the children's school. At a random school, school. yeah. In, in but I have to DC. meet with you. I can't meet with any of the other fundraisers. That's yes. when the alarm went off, in a way. And these were very, this was often involved the same agents that were coming yes. after me and the Weinstein accusers, sometimes the same front companies. So we had that revelation. And then, of course, we had this culmination of years of yes. saber rattling going back to Trump on the campaign trail, where he finally did pull out of the Iran deal. And look, regardless of what we ultimately learn about the Trump administration's potential links to that undercover operation, we certainly know that there were plenty of overt operations designed to discredit the Iran deal and Mm. find ways out of it. This was a campaign promise and a sincere commitment of Donald Trump. Why? I think that there's a lot of wholesale destruction of Obama-era accomplishments. Just petty vendetta. Uh, I think that a lot of it is petty vendetta. Mm. I assume that there is also some sincere conviction about the inadequacies of the deal. But this goes back to a broader problem that I highlighted more on peace, Mm. that there is this fundamental misunderstanding about what effective diplomacy looks like. Effective diplomacy is about compromise. And it's limited and it's flawed. And even the great modern acts of peacemaking, like Richard Holbrook in the Balkans, result in deals that, uh, you know, in that case, overly empowered the aggressors in the conflict, uh, doubled down on ethnic divisions in a conflict, imperfect in all sorts of ways. But it's the least bad resolution. It was the least bad resolution and it and it spared many, many lives. And I think likewise, I spend a lot of time going into the inside story of the brokering of the Iran deal and all the sweat and the blood and the broken bones um, and these high stakes negotiations around the world. And the architects of that deal, the characters in that story, are the first to say this was by its design a limited and imperfect arrangement. It did not seek to address Iran's many activities as a bad actor in the international space. It did not seek to, uh, you know, alleviate... Nor did it claim to. Right, the kidnappings or the missile tests or any of the human rights abuses. But we weren't looking at the Iran deal we got or alternatively a perfect deal that solved all of Iran's problems as a bad actor. We were looking at 
the deal we got, or nothing except for Iran as a nuclear power in a few months flat, and the tactical challenge of having to strike a country that can move things underground and by that point would have the technical know-how to rebuild rapidly. And, you know, I talked to some of the military guys involved in the determination during the Obama administration that that was not a satisfactory tactical option, that basically the position we would have been in absent the deal was a few months, Iran breaking out as a nuclear power, um, us bombing them, then them rebuilding immediately and us having to bomb them again. Gosh, yes. And we have unfortunately stepped away from the table, basically violated the deal, uh, driving a wedge between us and our allies, sending a troubling message to North Korea at a time when we want them to believe we stand by our commitments if you come to the table with the United States, and leaving us no alternative. There's no plan B. So this is a devastating development from the perspective of this story I tell in War on Peace, and I spend a lot of time unpacking all the possible ramifications of it. What do you think the most likely ramification is? I mean, I think we've set ourselves back tremendously with respect to Iran and with respect to North Korea. And what does Trump get out of it, apart from the Yabu sucks to Obama's legacy? I mean, I think that's a pretty big incentive for him. You really do? Yeah. And the great irony is... If there is any deal with North Korea, and we're kind of, we're flying blind there, you know, could a meeting between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump bear fruit? Maybe. Time will tell. Mm. Uh, We are doing it in exactly the wrong way, which is without the bearing of any expertise. Um, You know, we have dismissed all of the people who have tried for decades to talk to North Korea and know the ways in which they lie and the ways in which they will play you if you go into a meeting with them. We're not allowing these ongoing proceedings to be informed by those voices in any way. And I think that's really troubling whether we succeed or fail there because he thinks somewhere deep inside it's just like building a casino yeah look i mean certainly there seems to be this recklessness and this total disregard for that kind of um careful guidance is there any possibility that it's actually a little more cyclical than you allow and that if we look at from the british perspective I think that that joining Gulf War Two probably wouldn't have happened if Sierra Leone and Kosovo hadn't delivered Mm. such a a boost to Tony Blair, hadn't been so successful. I don't want to make it sound too cynical, so that he was on the crest of a militaristic wave, Mm -hmm. and then that wave crashed against the shore in Iraq, and therefore for Obama and, and for Cameron, the reluctance to get properly involved in Syria, for example, had more to do with what happened in Libya than it had to do with what was happening in Syria. So, so that there'd I be... think it's absolutely cyclical. Right. Um, and that's something I confront in this book. You see this trend, and I, I don't want to overstate it and imply that this is always the case, but on a number of occasions, you see administrations come in, go for the military options first, yes. because it's splashier and it's quicker and you want results. And, and it's easy to communicate to the public. It's and newspaper to, editors like it. It's easy to communicate in the public. The media reinforces it. You know, you think of like, Ted Koppel going in with his hard hat to Iraq. Mm. And moreover, internally, and this is something I document in in the book, there are systems in place to encourage presidents to listen more to those military voices saying, yes. let's go in. And you see that happening in George W. Bush's administration, where there's the disasters of Iraq. And Colin Powell talks very frankly in this book about the ways in which we were snowed and the ways in which he and the State Department were marginalized in that first term. You see it in the Obama administration's first term, where Ben Rhodes and Samantha Power and others are very frank and kind of giving a mea culpa in this book and saying like, yeah, we had to 
change some stuff in the second term as a result of this. Ben Rhodes says there was a culture of celebrity generals and we had to course correct after. Of course. And then you, you do see that same course correction across multiple administrations. So after Iraq, Condoleezza Rice, I think reflecting on those strategic disasters, did make a push for, you know, she said, we need a few good diplomats. Yes. And she embarked on those six-party talks with North Korea, for instance. There was a, a refocusing on diplomacy in Iraq and beyond. Uh, in the Obama administration, you saw those last few years devoted to, I think, a sincere reinvestment in large-scale diplomacy. And that's how you got the Iran deal and the thaw in relations with Cuba and the Paris Climate Change Accord. And if we could squint a bit and keep Donald Trump out of our line of vision, that would be grounds for cautious optimism for the future or not? Explain what you mean by that. Well, I, I think Donald Trump gives the lie to any notion of, of a cyclical process, doesn't he? He's such an aberration. He's such an anomaly. I'm, I'm frank about acknowledging that some of the current moment and the the extremity to which this trend has been driven yes. is born of an idiosyncratic president hooked on Twitter and with a unique disregard for expertise. And um, truth. And truth. But I also think that this is the ultimate cautionary tale in a string of cautionary tales okay. that I document in this yes. book. And yes. I sincerely hope that whatever comes next in terms of American leadership, there is some understanding that it is a matter of urgency that we pull out of this nosedive. Um, finally, Ronan Farrow, you, you struggled to tell me what you would have answered if I'd asked you at 11 what you wanted to be when you grow up. At, at the age of 30, what, what would you describe as your ambitions? I hope that I can be a small part of uh, making the world and the conversation better. And if that means telling stories that expose injustice and elevate voices that have been silenced for too long, then that's something I would be really proud to continue to have the chance to do. Ronan Farrow, thank you. It's a pleasure. That thank really you. was. And that was the force of nature that is 30-year-old Ronan Farrow, who has arguably achieved more in three decades on this planet than most of us would in in 30. War on Peace is out now. It is one of the most important books of our time. Don't take my word for that. That's what Walter Isaacson said. And if you enjoyed that interview, then do remember you can subscribe to Unfiltered. Leave a rating and a review on iTunes if you want. And if you can think of someone who might have enjoyed what you've just enjoyed, don't forget to tell them. You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien. Brought to you by Joe.